south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan. This is episode 258, covering the week of April 19th through April 23rd, 2021. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook, Exploring the Southern Tradition. It's a great book by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. Yours free of charge. If you want to purchase that book, you can go to Amazon and look it up, and you can get it there as well in a hardback form. But we give it to you free of charge simply for giving us that email address. You'll get our Daily Dose of Dixie Monday through Friday. It's a great way for us to keep in touch with you. If we have any conferences coming up, anything that we're doing, we'd like to communicate with you through email. And so let's talk about the material and what's at stake in all of this. I mean, we know it, right? I just saw an image the other day. Somebody put a toilet on top of uh, a the spot where Lee's statue was in Baltimore because that's funny, right? Or the individual stealing the Jefferson Davis seat it's from Selma and offering and saying they're going to make it into a toilet. I mean, or the mayor of, I think it was Richmond, one of these areas that took the statues or it was, um, maybe it was in Maryland. I can't remember. Took the statues and put them at a sewage. I think it was Maryland. Put them at a sewage treatment plant to show what he thought of them. This is where we are, right? This is what these people are. They are, they are despicable individuals. Despicable. But this is by design. I mean, look, we've known this was the case of the left and their allies for since the French Revolution. These people are despicable. They have no moral fiber. They're absolute hypocrites when it comes to power and other things. All they really care about is their own power. But in in doing all this, in, in the Institute, and why does it exist? I mean, why does the Abbeville Institute exist? It's not just to talk about Confederate monuments and the war and to wax, you know, what was this? What was that? What was the point of the war? I mean, we do that kind of stuff. But in reality, the, the point of the Institute, our mission is to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. And that tradition is a broad subject, right? I mean, when you talk about politics, I mean, looking at the Southern tradition politically, what is that? We can look at it in terms of philosophy. We can look at an art, literature, music, religion. So many things fall under that banner, which is why we try to do so many different things on the website. And it seems like that tradition is being steamrolled, and that's because, again, by design. As Eugene Genovese pointed out in the 90s, most academics won't even look critically into the South, and they won't do it because they're afraid of what it might show them, and that is that a lot of what they believe about things is wrong. That's an important thing to understand. They don't want to be told they're wrong. Now, everyone goes out and they look at things and they see things, oh, yeah, well, that, I mean, this is different than what I thought, or these things are different than, than uh, what I conceived them to be. Everybody finds that at times. We all are rethinking everything we thought. I mean, this happens. Every human will do this if they're intellectually curious. They will come across things that challenge their worldviews, challenge how they think about things, and then they can either accept it or not based on their own conception of things. This is what people do. 
What we do here is present the Southern tradition, the true and valuable part of the Southern tradition. Valuable meaning not, when we say true and valuable, we're not presenting the pro-slavery side of it as a valuable part of the Southern tradition. And Genovese, of course, was heavily critical of that. But you can shore those, you can, you can slice that stuff off. And there was a statement that he made in his book, A Slaveholder's Dilemma, which is just so good, that got into that. He said, we could, if we would, profit greatly from a reasoned engagement with the thought of Calhoun, Dew, Bledsoe, Thornwell, and others as we grapple today with the staggering problems of a world in headlong transition to the Lord knows what. The finest aspects of their thought, shorn from the tragic commitment to slavery and racism, constitute a searing critique of some of the most dangerous tendencies in modern life. Think about what he's saying there. And this is where the Institute fits into that. Now, I dare say, you know, if Genovese was still alive, he might appreciate some of what we do. I mean, he was a critically thinking man. He may not like everything we do, but he probably would like some of what we do because we try to do that on a regular basis. To think critically about these things and to show where they fit. And so thinking about that, thinking about Robert E. Lee, what is Robert E. Lee why is Robert E. Lee so dangerous to the left? Why is he so dangerous? He's dangerous to the left because he is the embodiment of the Christian gentleman. And the pieces that we had, one was a video and one was a piece that we had Wednesday and Thursday this week, really get into that. He is the embodiment of the Christian gentleman. And the piece by Earl Starbuck, I mean, this is so... Look, Earl Starbuck... Um, is not a Ph.D. academic. Uh, he has a master's in history, but no. But he's he writes better than most Ph.D.s I've seen. And of course, he wrote. He's writing this series on Lee. He took a lot of time to do this, and I commend him for it. The first part of this is an examination of Lee as he calls it the believer, right? The Christian gentleman, Lee, the believer. And he gets into Lee's development as a Christian over his life and how important Christianity was to Lee. And if you read Genovese, this is one thing you get about it. The, the Southern society, the top of Southern society, believed inherently. They called the Bible their most important book. These were Christian men to their core. Now, they weren't perfect men. No, no man is. And they made mistakes and they did things that we would we wouldn't agree with today, but they were Christian men to their core. And I think that's one of the most important things you can get from Lee. And he, as that, he presents a challenge to the left. You've got to tear down Christianity because Christianity is the enemy of all the radical nonsense that they're pushing today. Christianity is the enemy of everything they're trying to do to society. It is traditional. It's ordered. It's conservative. That's what Christianity represents. It represents the best of Western civilization. And Lee represents the best of Western civilization. It's why people across the Atlantic admired Robert E. Lee so much. It's why Americans, North and South, admired Lee. Anyone that was had a brain. We're to hang that guy for treason. Well, his real opponent said, no, no, that can't happen. That won't happen. 
But there's going to be so much more to this. And of course, on Wednesday, we had Phil Lee with a wonderful little video, Educator and Conciliator, talking about Lee's views on reconciliation after the war. And I think, again, this is just fantastic because Lee really, and we, Lincoln talked about with malice toward none, with charity for all, that's what Lee did after the war was over. Lincoln's dead. Lee is carrying that forward in a way that was refreshing. And you go back and you read you know, con Confederate monument dedications, Union monument dedications. They talked about this in reconciliation. We need to put down the sword shake hands, everything, we're back together. You did have Northerners at times in their dedication ceremonies talking about the end of slavery as a benefit, and this is what they did. Then you had others saying that wasn't what we were doing at all. We were just simply trying to keep the Union together. We're honoring these men that died. So this is an important part of all of this. Lee should be remembered as one of the greatest Americans in American history, without question. And for years, he was recognized as that because he represented the best of what America produced, the Christian gentleman. And that's a part of the Southern tradition that we try to hang on to at the Abbeville Institute, at least to say, I mean, these are, these are things that are true and valuable in the Southern tradition. These are things that we should emulate in the Southern tradition. In fact, the piece by Starbuck, when you, when you get to the end of it, uh, he says, looking at Lee's definition, it becomes plain that a gentleman is a man who seeks to model his behavior and character after the character of God. That was Lee's definition. And this was a note that he left among his personal papers. He said, it's what Lee said, the forebearing, forebearing use of power does not only form a touchstone, but the manner in which an individual enjoys certain advantages over others is a test of a true gentleman. The power which the strong have over the weak the employer over the employed, the educated over the unlettered, the experienced over the confiding, even the clever over the silly, the forbearing or inoffensive use of all this power or authority or a total abstinence from it, when the case admits it, will show the gentleman in a plain light. The gentleman does not needlessly and unnecessarily remind an offender of a wrong he may have committed against him. He can not only forgive, he can forget. He strives for that nobleness of self and mildness of character which impart sufficient strength to let the past be but the past. A true man of honor feels humbled himself when he cannot help humbling others. That's what Starbuck said, and he wrote, he had this in there, and I think it's a wonderful quote. And then, of course, he backs it up by Scripture. And this was Lee, the Christian gentleman. This is Lee that everyone wants to tear down. Why? Why? Because Lee fought, because Lee was a traitor. But again, even that charge, if you think about it logically to its, carry it to its end, well, then everybody in the, in the United States in the founding generation should be condemned because they were all traitors. We, the United States, if you say that 
the founders were traitors, is built on treason. So why would we deny the same accolades to Lee as we would to Washington or Jefferson or Madison or Monroe or John Marshall or Sam Adams or John Hancock? Why would we deny that? Alexander Hamilton? These were all traitors. Traitors. And then you can say, well, but Lee was a traitor who defended slavery. Well, every state in the United States in 1776 was a slaveholding state, so they were all traitors that defended slavery. I mean, this is, this is the silliness of all these arguments. Lee has to be torn down because he represents the best of America, and because he represents the best of America, he cannot be admired, because we have to admire scoundrels, people not worth admiration, people that did nothing like Lee. People did not have the character of Lee. Lee's actions after the war, as Lee points out, Philip Lee points out, were tremendous. I mean, honorable actions after the war. This is why Lee should be remembered and why his name should not be removed from Washington Lee, but should be celebrated everywhere. Lee's statue shouldn't come down anywhere. And Americans knew this. Americans knew this up until the last 20 years or so, when we had a crop of people who have been taught at our colleges and universities being driven by that primarily, run around saying that, oh, Lee was just a traitor and a, and a racist, so we can't, we can't admire Lee. This is an anti-intellectual. This is just stupid in, in his face, in fact. So I love that piece by Earl Starbuck and then, of course, Philly's video. And then if you look at the other pieces we had this week, and it all carries this theme of tradition, how important tradition is in America. The piece on Friday by uh, Bo Trawick, H.V. Trawick, Knight of Melrose. It's a wonderful story of these, this, these traditions uh, that were in the South and how long they had been there. And how important this was to families. He says, the last thing I saw of the tournaments in Virginia was a picture in a newspaper of some knight with a plug of tobacco in his jaw, wearing a flannel shirt and a feed store hat. My father had long since gone fox hunting with my sister. He later became master of the Bedford County Hunt, but I remembered him best thundering down the tournament tracks, glory at a gallop. His sash was of red and gold, and it is now carefully folded in the drawer of my bedside table. He was the knight of Melrose, champion of his mother's plantation in Buckingham County, and I was his squire. Like the knights of old, he taught me to ride, to shoot straight, and to speak the truth. The Southern tradition. Ride, shoot straight, speak the truth. Always mount from the left. That's where the horses expect you to do. It comes from centuries of cavalrymen having to mount from that side with their sabers on their left hip. Reach over with your left hand, palm down, take the seat of your reins in your first. Let the right rein come out between your middle finger and your ring finger. And the left rein come out of the bottom of your of your fist. That way you can neck rein him and leave your right arm hanging straight down by your side or free for wielding a saber or a pistol. Sit up straight. Don't flop around like a feed sack. And don't flap your elbows up and down like some buzzard or those people in the cowboy movies. 
Of course, Trawick says, you know, his father ran the small arms committee at the infantry school at Fort Benning before he was sent to India and Burma. When you shoot for accuracy, take a breath and let it out. That calms your heartbeat. Take another breath, let half of it out, and catch it in your throat. Then press the trigger. If your front sight wavers off the target, hold the pressure you have on the trigger until you bring it back. Then press some more. It's supposed to surprise you when it goes off. If you jerk the trigger, you're going to miss every time. And then he gets into the story how he told a lie, essentially. And his father would tell this story over and over again until he found out that his son had told a lie and that he, and they no longer told the story. Or at least not a lie, but he admitted parts of the truth. And he needed forgiveness from that. And it came in the form of a dream later on. But that's the gentleman and his father and that's the, the chivalric code that was so much part of this life that we, we lose without the Southern tradition. And so this little story, this little piece of literature, it's very good. Gets into that. And then, of course, we had the book, the, uh, book review. It's a movie review, in fact, by Ann Wilson-Smith, who is, uh, runs Reckoning.com. Um, and she wrote a book, Robert E. Lee, a history book for kids. But this is about a, a new film entitled Abundant Acreage Available. And the first line, you know, like many traditional-minded people this era, I've become disenchanted with pr products of the modern movie industry, which are mostly either filth, silliness, or formulatic pablum. And, of course, you have this film, which is uh, directed, written and directed by a North Carolina native, and it takes place in the field of a small home, a North Carolina tobacco farm. And it gets into, the, this, is, this is about family and tradition. Family and tradition. She says, the simplicity of this film allows it to be truly profound, starkly without fanfare or contrivances. The most compelling possible stories, those of the human heart, are expressed. So it's, it's a good story because of the simplicity of it and because of the environment in which it's in, the family farm. Simplicity of all of that. You have that, the character, the tradition, the honor. And so I say all that to get to the last piece of the week, which was actually the first, which is by Boyd Cathy, and it's entitled, Equality is Not America's Founding Principle. And he talks about how the latest conservative fashion was yesterday's leftist fashion. And this is what we get into. There, most of what happens in American conservatives happens in this way. And he brings up Dad, Dabney's very famous passages in the Southern Magazine about conservatism. And I want to read this last part of it. Because this is important. What we're talking about in American conservatism today is not really conserving anything. It's just conserving what was leftist, you know, 20 or 30, 40 years ago. That's, what we've, that's where we've gone. That's what American conservatism has become, and that's how ridiculous it all is. So I want to read this part of uh, the article. So Dabney wrote this in 1871. It may be inferred again that the present movement for women's rights will certainly prevail from the history of its only opponent, northern conservatism. 
This is a party which never conserves anything. Its history has been that it demurs to each aggression of the progressive party and aims to save its credit by a respectable amount of growling, but always acquiesces at the, la- at the last in the innovation. What was resisted novelty by yesterday is today one of the accepted principles of conservatism. It is now conservative only in effecting to resist the next innovation, which will tomorrow be forced upon its timidity and will be succeeded by some third revolution to be announced and then adopted in its, tor- in its turn. American conservatives, conservatism is merely the shadow that follows re- radicalism as it moves forward toward perdition. It remains behind it, but never retards it, and always advances near its leader. This pretend salt hath utterly lost its savor. Wherewith shall it be salted? Its impotency is not hard, indeed, to explain. It is worthless because it is the conservatism of expediency only, and not of sturdy principle. It intends to risk nothing serious for the sake of the truth, and has no idea of being guilty of the folly of martyrdom. It always, when about to enter a protest, very blandly informs the wild beast whose path it is is to stop, that its bark is worse than its bite, and that the only means to save its manners by enacting its, its descent role of resistance. The only practical purpose which it now subserves in American politics is to give enough exercise to radicalism to keep it in wind and to prevent its becoming pursy and lazy from having nothing to whip. No doubt after a few years when women's suffrage shall have been accomplished, fat conservatism will tacitly admit to its creed and therefore thenceforward plume itself upon its wise firmness in opposing with similar weapons the extreme of baby suffrage. And when that too shall have been won, it will be heard declaring that the integrity of the American Constitution requires at least the refusal of suffrage to asses. There it will assume with great dignity its final position. So this is Dabney saying, you know, conservatism is just adopting the Again, the latest trend, and it'll keep moving. And this is what it does. So, Kathy concludes, the defeat of the Confederacy was, in very real sense, the triumph of what was and is an essentially egalitarian view of the American founding, which declared that the American nation was founded on an idea, or rather a proposition, and that proposition is that all men are created equal. That principle is the foundation and promise of America is false and based on a faulty and ahistorical view and reading of the Declaration of Independence as the fundamental document of our history. As Professor, as Professor Barry Allen Shane of, Co- of Colgate University has demonstrated convincingly in his encyclopedic study, the Declaration of Independence in Historical Context, that is not at all what the founders meant when they debated and then employed those words in the Declaration. But it was the vision that, with, was the, the vision that with Father Abraham Lincoln triumphed in tra- trajectory in 1865. And it is that vision that informs the modern conservative movement and fatally debilitates the so-called opposition to the rampant radicalism we are drowning in. That vision informed the advisory 1776 commission named by President Donald Trump to supposedly counter the historical fabrications of the much-ballyhooed 1619 project, whose findings are now being fanatically, I'm sorry, frantically incorporated into every level of the American educational system. In essence, it is the same vision with a few modifications advanced by the 1619 progressivists, which is true. There's no conservatism in the 1776 commission at all. They speak out of things and talk about this thing is bad and that thing is bad. We need to think about this, but there's no conservatism is in it. Not Southern conservatism anyways. In fact, they clearly denounce it. John C. Calhoun is the enemy. The South is the enemy of anything good in American society. We can't admire it. We can't like it. We can't try to save it. We can't say anything good about it because, as Genovese pointed out, 
these people have their nose in the air and thinking that Southerners are just all reactionaries. And they had nothing good to say about anything. But this is the problem with modern society and how all these people, and this has been going on for 60 years, since I mean, longer, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years. Look, Richard Weaver was talking about this in 1960, what the left was trying to do. They're trying to silence opposition. The modern academy does not want any opposition to its claims on the South. And this is why Genovese, near the end of his life, was pretty much ostracized. I mean, he was Eugene Genovese, so they had to deal with him. But they didn't really want him around. because. And it's amazing, when Genovese dies, all the stuff that he opposed now becomes ascendant because there's no Genovese to block it. There's no Genovese to, to write that this stuff is all complete trash. He dies, and with him dies a real intellectual who was willing to debate these things and actually put forward a position that was in... Look, Genovese was a Marxist. Genovese was one of the left. You couldn't argue with him that yeah, this guy was just a, just a pro-Southern conservative his whole life. No, Genovese was one of, I mean, he was one of them. And he said, no, you all are just foolish. You're a bunch of jerks, and you don't even know what you're doing. And I find that to be true with many people in the academic environment. So we have all these wonderful, you know, Lee, this agrarian tradition, these traditions of the South that have been developed and established over time. And these things are worth saving. They're worth exploring. They're worth figuring out what is valuable in them, what's not valuable in them. Of course, we can, we can make that determination too. But just to say, just flippantly say they're not valuable, they're worthless. The Confederacy is worthless because it was racist and slaveholding. I mean, this is, this is an anti-intellectual argument at its core. There's nothing intellectual about it. You're not seeking to understand, to explore. What, is there anything valuable these people said? Well, they're just racist. They're a slaver. Anytime you see that pejorative, that qualifier before somebody, you know that they're trying to make an argument that's anti-intellectual. What they're doing, it's a, it's a modern fallacy of logic. It's an attack on the person and not what the person said. So it's just an attack on the person. I like to attack what the person said and attack the person. Because usually what the person said is just as bad as what the person is when you're talking about these leftists. So we had a lot of great stuff this week. You know, anytime we do stuff with Lee, we're going to have more of these installments in the Starbucks series. There's actually four of them. So there'll be three more weeks of that. We've got a lot of great stuff coming, a lot of great stuff upcoming in the next few weeks. We really do appreciate your support. If you do like what we do, again, please consider a donation to keep all of this going. None of it's free. It might be free to you. The podcast is free to you. The website is free to you. These things are all free of charge. But none of that is actually free, and the time and energy it takes to do these things and all of that. We appreciate your support very much, and uh, we do hope that you continue that support in the future for the future of the South and, of course, the Abbeville Institute and the Southern tradition. Until next time, good day.
guest tonight is Ryan Dawson. He's the host of the ANC Report, Anti-Neocon Report, a web-based uh, media outlet focusing on uh, geopolitical, economic, and social issues. Ryan is a graduate of the College of William & Mary. He is the author of several books, including Welcome to the USSA, Corruption in the Government and Media, and Separation of Business and State. He's also a documentarian who has produced a variety of films dealing with a wide range of subjects, such as uh, the Second Iraq War, 9-11, the anthrax attacks, uh, covert operations of the Central Intelligence Agency, and the JFK assassination. Ryan, how are you doing tonight? How was that intro? Is that good? That was a very good intro. Well, thanks. And I've got a new documentary coming out, Empire Unmasked. When is that due out? I'm hoping before September 11th of this year, just an arbitrary date for myself. But I think I'll finish it the end of this month. But then i got a review process. So I'm going to let people uh, give their feedback and then alter it some more so I don't have... 60 different versions of it like I did War by Deception. Okay. <laughs> and, of course, if people want to support your work, can do that, right? Yeah, they can. They can go over to ancreport.com right now, and there's a little button there where people can donate and get perks and sign books and DVDs and so on. That would help. I really appreciate it. Okay. We're, we're over halfway there now. I got over the half mark yesterday on my birthday. I got past the halfway mark. Oh, so good. Okay. That was good. Uh, what caught my attention tonight was uh, your, or recently was your article you posted, John Stewart taking down a peg. It was a article that was, I guess, in response to his rant regarding the Confederate flag controversy that was stirred up by this uh, latest shooting in that black church down in Charleston, South Carolina, by a young man whose, uh, I guess, motivations were allegedly racist. Um, you provide a revisionist analysis of the nature and causes of the so-called American Civil War. I guess let's start with the American Civil War. Let's start with that name. How do you feel about that name for that uh, event? Well, that's, I mean, I'll say that too sometimes because it's just commonly what people call it. But uh, my grandparents always called it the War of Northern Aggression. Some people call it the War for Southern Independence. Um, and others say the Civil War as if that's a more neutral term, but I, I think, you know, the war for Southern independence is more accurate, actually, than a civil war. And there's certainly nothing civil about it, and I know that's not what that means in that context, but uh, saying the Southern war for independence is what it was, and so I think that's a more accurate way to describe it. That's because when the South uh, uh, chose to secede from the Union, uh, in the winter uh, of 1860, 1861, they weren't looking to take over the North. They were looking to leave, uh, get free of the central government. So they weren't trying to take power in D.C. They were trying to just declare their independence. Well, right. I mean, Lincoln put a naval blockade on his own states, which is what kicked it off. But, yeah, they were trying to declare independence. They they hadn't even built the Navy. The, the Union inherited the Navy. And the Southerners were refer, referred to as the rebels because everyone saw it as rebellion against the, the Union. I mean, they were trying to lead. And it wasn't the first time that American states had a secessionist movement. Uh, that had happened before in the Northeast as well. And nobody questioned the constitution, constitutionality of it at that time, back in uh, 1814, all the way through the 1820s. Uh, there was the uh, secessionist movement in the Northeast, and at that time, it, it was fine. Now they didn't secede; they didn't succeed in seceding. But when they were doing it, nobody tried to claim it was unconstitutional, and, and Jefferson didn't send the army after them, and Madison didn't send the, the army after them. 
but it was over similar reasons. It was over the um, the embargo act of uh, 1807, which was playing off of the Chesapeake affair, where if people remember the War of 1812, one of one of the reasons there was because the British were attacking American ships, merchant marine ships, and forcing Americans to become British sailors uh, because they were at war with France and the Napoleonic Wars. And so as a response, the Americans limited trade to Britain and France, both as a way of preventing Americans from getting captured and forced to become sailors and uh, to try and punish uh, the, the British economically by suspending trade. That wasn't very popular and it really hurt New England in particular and Massachusetts in particular. And so they wanted to see, they, they tried to negotiate a separate peace agreement with the British during the War of 1812 at the tail end. However, as they were doing that is when Andrew Jackson got his great victories in the South. So they ended up looking like buffoons, but they were trying to secede and it was over the, the trade issues at that point in time as well. And if I recall, uh, Jackson's victory in New Orleans occurred after the treaty was signed, right? Right, uh, but the word hadn't gotten to them. Yeah. And they were trying to negotiate in the Northeast, like George Cabot and those guys were trying to have a separate peace agreement. And so, it, you know, it was similar reasons why. I mean, they were ready to secede from the Union. And before they were going to do that, they tried to issue constitutional amendments. And it failed. And the U.S. ended up winning that war anyway. But there were several reasons for the war in 1812, but one of them was that. It was the trade restrictions. But as far as why northern states wanted to secede from the Union, it was absolutely over the trade issue. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the right to secession was sort of presumed because under the original meaning of the Constitution, uh, the enumerated and uh, uh, specific powers specifically uh, specifically lacking in that was the power to prevent secession. So there was no power granted to the federal government. Well, right. And yeah. Jefferson and Madison were the consecutive presidents, and they knew that because they wrote the Constitution. So mm -hmm. there was no debate about it. And that was in the Virginia-Kentucky resolutions regarding right. interposition and nullification, which South Carolina invoked later on. Um, but as many as three states specifically mentioned secession in their ratification documents. I recall Rhode Island, New York, and Virginia, I believe, said specifically that should they ever perceive that, that the powers granted to, the, to the, the, the general government were being abused, they retain the right to secede from the Union. And that was not disputed, which meant by law that it applied to all the states. Well, Lincoln really didn't care what the law was or the Constitution. <laughs> yeah. Well, he yeah you know, he had a crisis to deal with. What is it? A uh, you know, this isn't a suicide pact, is it? <laughs> you know. But I think for I mean, people have to understand the Henry Clay's protective tariffs and the economic system to get a handle on what would end up um, happening before Lincoln got into office, and that's there was a long back and forth struggle with protective tariffs and it really started with Alexander Hamilton and they the argument was you know during the infancy they need to protect uh, industry from already established European industries and the way to do that was through the tariff now constitutionally the tariff was for gaining revenue not to protect certain industries but Henry Clay saw it as a way to get revenue and to protect American industries but by American, he means northern American industries. 
And that's what ended up happening. They started selectively putting tariffs on specific goods like cotton and wool, et cetera, that were produced in the agricultural sections of the United States, which were all in the South at that time. So it really hurt them. They raised the rate in 1816 to 20 percent, from 11% to 20%. And this was devastating. And this hurt the New England states and the South, but the Mid-Atlantic region was pretty much unharmed by it, and they gained a lot in industry, or so they thought. Um, but it actually would have hurt them too. And this had been argued against it. Uh, they had first the 1860 tariff up to 20%. John Randolph opposed it from Virginia. And he made very articulate arguments of why that wouldn't work. And he talked about the competitive advantage that was written by Adam Smith um, on free trade and why free trade was better than mercantilism. But uh, it continued anyway. And they tried to raise the tariff again in 1820. And this was a huge fight. John Taylor uh, argued against it. He said, this is going to reduce consumption. You know, if you tax and put duties on imports, then that's going to raise the cost of those. And so consumers are going to spend less and they're going to buy less for manufacturing because those prices will go up as they'll have regional monopolies and so on. And so that tariff failed. But by 1824, they finally got it pushed through and they raised it 30% on a number of goods. Cotton was one of those. And it was very devastating. This is where you start to get the clear divide between North and South, because there were some Northerners that argued against it. Daniel Webster from Massachusetts argued against it. And a man he would end up debating with later, Robert Hine from South Carolina, they both articulated how you can't favor one economic sector over others. You can't favor industry over agriculture and commerce, but that's what they were doing. But when you look at that 1824 tariff, 47 out of 48 representatives from the South voted no. I think the one that was yes vote was from Tennessee. But 47 out of 48, pretty much unanimously against it. And this is what happened. So that passed in the latter half of 1824. And at that time, cotton was 21 cents a pound. And that's a lot of cotton for a pound. And by the next year, it was only 12 cents a pound. And by 1826, it had dropped to 8.8 .8 cents a pound. So from 21 cents to 9 cents, basically a little less than 9 cents a pound, which devastated states like South Carolina in particular. They, the South was providing 80% of the cotton in the world and about 100%, almost 100% of the cotton from the U.S. was from the South. And that was 80% of the cotton used in the entire world. And it's because of the Civil War that cotton manufacturers, uh, producers in Egypt, and which became the new dynasties there, came to prominence and got their wealth, uh, which led to a lot of geopolitical uh, events all throughout the Middle East and Europe was, you know, scrambling to find replacements for this cotton export. But that was a, another consequence of the Civil War. But for South Carolina, it was so devastating to have that uh, industry scapegoated for the stake of uh, northern manufacturers. And then in 1828, they raised it again. This is the, the worst. They are already talking about secession. And in 1828, it went from 32% to 50%. And the Senate voted 26 to 21 on that. But when you break it down, 
94% of the South voted no. And also about two-thirds of New England voted no. So it wasn't clearly just North and South. It was the South and New England versus the Mid-Atlantic and West. And the Mid-Atlantic and West, uh, of course, they all voted yes. And I mean, a 50% tax is insane. And anybody knows, everyone knows that. 50%, it just broke, it broke everything. It was called the Tariff of Abomination. And that's when uh, Calhoun, who was the vice president at the time from South Carolina, declared that states should be able to decide whether a law was unconstitutional or not. And this is where we get the process of nullification, which people are talking about today, trying to use nullification against things like the NSA. And, and he said the whole system of legislation imposing duties on imports not for revenue, but for the protection of one branch of industry at the expense of others is unconstitutional, unequal, and oppressive, and calculated to corrupt the public virtue and destroy liberty of the country. That was John Calhoun. And so through 1828 to 1832, that party of nullification party in South Carolina took control of the legislature. And so by 1833, once the nullification party took a majority that's when they capitulate and say okay we'll lower the tariff back to uh the 1824 rate which was still too high i mean it, it's like raising it and then raising it again and then only lowering it back to the first one that you raise it to so the south wasn't having it they were being broken by the 1824 tariff anyway and so the 1828 was even worse and people, uh, apologists on the civil war, like to point out, well, the tariff rate was the lowest it had been in 40 years. Well, yes and no. I mean, that's because they only lowered it back to what they had already raised it to. That's kind of like Obama cutting future spending. That's not a cut. You can't cut increases. You know, future, we we're going to raise it by $4 billion, Now we're only going to raise it by $3 billion. That's a raise of $3 billion. That's not a cut of $1 billion. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and all they did was go back. And then they did agree to start reducing the tariff back down to 20%, which was still high. But they were going to get rid of that 30% increase because the tariff wasn't uniform. It was 37% on average, but on cotton and wool and iron and certain things, it was extremely high. And they wanted to cut that down to 20%. And it's, it is in the Constitution that it should be uniform anyway. And so they made a compromise. They said, okay, over the next two years and two-year intervals, we'll lower it and lower it back down to there. But by the time Lincoln gets in the office, and this is also post-Mexican War, which has a lot to do with that, they, he, he, he raised the tariff 47%, so basically back to 50%. And they just they couldn't handle that, and they seceded. South Carolina seceded. Well, there are several southern states that hadn't, and... Lincoln put a naval blockade on North Carolina, Virginia, and South Carolina to enforce the import and export tax. And that is why South Carolina fired on Fort Sumter, is because that was the, the U.S. Navy's uh, fort that was enforcing the policing of this tax. And South Carolina said, we seceded. We're not part of the United States, so you can't collect taxes on us. You can't enforce these import-export taxes. And Lincoln said, I'm doing it anyway. And so they fired on Fort Sumter and took it over. And then and Lincoln had put a naval blockade up on three other states. 
And so Virginia and North Carolina seceded because why is the Navy blockading them? They didn't do anything at all. And they were part of the United States at that time. And because of that blockade is what pushed them over the edge. Virginia seceded and North Carolina was the last state to secede and join the South. But had Virginia and North Carolina not seceded, there would not have been a civil war. I mean, almost 80 percent of the war was fought in Virginia and the bulk of the Southern Army was from Virginia and North Carolina. Those were the most populous states at the time. Today, you can look at Florida and Texas as large states, but at that time they were nothing. They were some of the smallest states. The largest state was Virginia and then North Carolina. It's reversed today, but there wouldn't have been a civil war without that. And they all had different reasons for secession, but it was over this policy. And people bring up slavery as an issue, but you can look at the appeasement. The North was not trying to free the slaves. The North was trying to preserve the Union so that they could preserve their economic hegemony, which was clear. The Corwin Amendment was passed. It was introduced by two Northerners, one from Ohio, one from New York, which um, stated that it made a constitutional amendment that the federal government would not involve in the state's industry, including labor, which included slavery, that they were not going to abolish slavery. They were going to leave that institution in place. And this was passed, but it wasn't ratified because the southern states wouldn't ratify it. They seceded from the Union, so they couldn't vote on it. Now, in the Union's opinion, they were still part of the United States and weren't allowed to secede. So even though the, the Congress had passed it, to get a constitutional amendment, it has to be ratified by the states, and the southern states didn't ratify it. But Lincoln tried. He personally wrote the governors of each state's letters saying, here's this amendment. We're not going to oppose slavery. You can keep your slaves. And the South seceded anyway, because that's not that was never why they were seceding to begin with. The tariff policy was the main reason and offering them to keep their slaves didn't matter. I mean, they had a constitutional amendment already passed. All they had to do is ratify it. They could have kept every single one of their slaves and there was still a civil war and they still seceded. Not one single state took that deal. Which is an important point because offering to enshrine slavery in the Constitution, which is what the Corn Amendment did, if the states were concerned, if the southern states were more concerned, were primarily concerned about preserving this institution of slavery, they would have taken that deal, and they didn't. There, obviously, there were other concerns. So, right. If they yeah. were, I mean, Missouri was maybe the one exception where the, slavery was an issue there, but the, the reason the North was opposing slavery was in Lincoln's own words. This was with Kansas, uh, actually, as well is that if people remember bleeding kansas and that story because that's the yeah. kind of high school thing you'll get is they'll focus on this because it, it's the one thing that kind of supports their argument lincoln didn't want to expand slave states because he was a white separatist and he did not want whites and blacks to mix and he wrote this out he said if we can keep slavery out of kansas we keep blacks out of kansas negroes what he said yeah and if you can keep them out then you can keep the races from mixing I mean, he was part of the Back to Liberia movement. He wanted to send blacks back to Africa. He supported that while he was a congressman, too. So it's not just something he said, you know, as president to appease people. That was his life philosophy. You know, long before the Civil War, he wanted blacks out. It's part of the Illinois Constitution and the Black Code laws that blacks, foreign blacks weren't even allowed to enter the state for more than 10 days. They wanted them out. They wanted a white America. 
Uh, everyone was racist in the 1860s. And you can point to, oh, well, this certain general and this certain colonel in the Southern Army said these racist things. Yeah, so that you can say the same thing with the Northern Army, too. I mean, Grant himself had slaves, and he becomes the president, and he was the principal uh, Union general. And Grant kicked Jews out of the Treasury. I mean, there was plenty of racism. And, of course, General Custers, who infamously went west, slaughtering Native Americans. And then post-Civil War, the Chinese were enslaved. And it was not indentured servitude. It was slavery. And they blew them up with dynamite and everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Murdered them. I mean, and really, the Civil War is when industry took control of government completely. They complete, they completed their capture of government. And these it's northern, the beginning it's, of the it's the beginning of the American oligarchy, because you could say it is. It yeah. is a plutocracy, and that's the, yeah, it was an oligarchy. We started with the railroads, in which Lincoln was a railroad lawyer, but so that was is Sherman. <laughs> so was Sherman, and yeah. and that's another thing, you know, when people arguing about the Confederate flags and this and that. The the North did lose more people than the South in the Civil War, and they lost more battles, but they also started with a lot more people. So percentage wise, the South lost more but about a quarter of a million of the deaths in the civil war were southerners and their cities were burned most of them were civilians it, was, it wasn't just their army it was civilians and a lot of people starved to death which is how most people die in most wars up until modern times was through starvation and that's blacks and whites by the way mm-hmm. and sherman just went through he burned atlanta you know, he wanted to make them out he just burned cities so people were joining the Southern armies to defend their homes. It wasn't about tariffs or slavery or anything for a lot of people. It was, well, there's an invading army coming, and they're going to burn down our city, so I'm going to fight them. Uh, and that's what that, I mean, anybody would do that. And so a lot of the Confederate veterans were defending their homeland from an invasion force. And that's what happened. I mean, the first shots of the Civil War after Fort Sumter, which was legit because they were taxing a state that was no longer part of the United States, was Lincoln sent troops down through Maryland. He wanted to protect D.C. And the 6th Massachusetts, at the time in Baltimore, the rail lines didn't go through the city. So they had to go down the, the northern Baltimore, walk through the city, and then get on another train and go south. And... Sixth of Massachusetts was getting booed because they went they went down with guns and uniform to show their force because they were worried about Maryland joining the South, which would mean D.C. would be surrounded. And the crowd was jeering them and booing them. And the the Northern Army fired on civilians and killed 12 people. And then the civilians fired back and killed four Union soldiers. And the state song in Maryland, Maryland, my Maryland, is is based on that event. I mean, it's a song about <laughs> being fired on by the U.S. Army. Uh, but that's how Lincoln conducted things. He closed down newspapers. He wouldn't allow political dissent. He arrested people without trial, thousands of people, just threw them in jail. He arrested no the, the, the mayor of Baltimore, didn't he? And also uh, uh, closed the state legislature down, didn't he? He did, and he, when he yeah. threw judges in jail. Say, oh, you don't agree? Well, you're going to jail. He just took the judge and put him in jail. He didn't care. Uh, he was the original neocon. And <laughs> it's these guys from the railroad companies, Rockefellers, etc. And it's these Hamilton and Clay, the banking fanatics, that end up winning. 
you know, Jackson and Jefferson and a lot of these Southerners had opposed that the whole time. But from Lincoln onward, the, the North and the banking families reigned supreme. And it was after the Civil War that they went west and completed the genocide of American Indians. And that, I mean, all through the 1890s, they slaughtered Indians. And at the tail end of that was 1898, which is the Spanish-American War, which was started by false pretexts. And from 1898 to 1934, you had all the banana wars where the, the U.S. was using military force to invade Central American states and Caribbean islands and set up military occupations. They occupied Haiti. They occupied Cuba. They invaded Honduras. They invaded uh, Nicaragua, Guatemala, and so on, uh, all through that period between 1898 and 1934. And it really was just a, an expansion, this Asian Pacific pivot they talk about. That's when the U.S. took the Philippines as well. It was part of the Treaty of Paris from the Spanish. So the Spanish-American War led to, you know, opening the doors for the U.S. to just have carte blanche to attack the South some more to, to hit all of Caribbean and Central American states. It had already had two wars with Mexico and Germans were supporting Mexico during World War One, So they weren't reinvaded, but basically everyone else was openly done too. And from 1934 on, they switched to the policy of uh, puppet governments instead of occupations. So as when, you know, Batista was put in power and so on. <clears throat> and you have the kind of uh, corporate takeover style warfare with the yeah. United company and so on but i mean this that is not that long removed from the civil war and the indian wars i mean geronimo which a lot of people probably only know from bugs bunny jumping out of a plane and yelling his name was alive in in the 1905 when the wright brothers were flying the airplane they were still putting apache indians on trains and shipping them to florida to live in concentration camps uh and you know these these were men who were alive during the civil war yeah, it's just a generation or so. Yeah, it's just it's just in the, they're older now. But I mean, those people were alive during Reconstruction and so on. I mean, this is that was their policies. This is what it led to just unabashed militarism and empire. And American. Well, first, make an observation. But going back to uh, uh, South Carolina and the nullification crisis, is that's a testimony to the right of secession because when they threatened to secede, I know Jackson tried to push through a force bill, but I guess Henry Clay stepped in and negotiated. The threat of secession led people to negotiate to lower the tariff to make it uh, less destructive. So without, right, and it, and it yeah. worked in a way. It yeah, they started taking it down in two-year intervals, and there was a period there. And but the real reason, and just this is my opinion, mm -hmm. nullification threat, you know, was a threat enough to say, all right, we're going to lower this tariff. But yeah. the real reason was the Mexican War. Who fought that war? The South. Yeah, the generals. Yeah, made it was the Tennessee Volunteers and so on. And this is the ironic thing, too. Robert E. Lee was involved in that and was instrumental in defeating Mexico. At that time, it wasn't like now. It was much more even. I mean, Mexicans had cavalry and the same kind of guns and all that. Mm -hmm. They just got outgeneraled. And that war was over uh, regional scapegoating as well. The North Mexico had only been an independent country for 11 years. They had won their independence from Spain. And in year 11 of that, the northern half of Mexico, which included Texas at the time, was angry at the southern half because the southern half was taking all the taxes and spending it in Mexico City and the southern side and ignoring the region up north. 
Now, really, the region up north wasn't really part of Mexico other than on paper because it was still completely controlled by American Indians, but they just sort of drew a map and said, this is yeah, ours. Yeah. But uh, that part seceded and ended up trying to set up its own state and then later join the, the Union with the United States because of the United States Army and the Texicans and Northern Mexicans fighting the Southern Mexicans. But it was the uh, General Lee, and, well, he wasn't a general at the time, but he would become a general, but it was Robert E. Lee and also Northern generals fighting to take territory away from Mexico, which became a slave state, by the way. So at that time, it was okay for the United States to take more territory from another state through force and make a slave state. And then they also created California, which used to be part of Mexico. So you could argue, hey, is that a flag, that California flag or that Texas flag racist? Because Mexico abolished slavery in 1829, right? <laughs> uh, and yet now their territory joined a, a slave state. Uh, in the United yeah, yeah. States still had slaves. And the North had slaves too, by the way. I mean, five oh, yeah. North states had slaves during the Civil War. And other, uh, you could have private slaves. And there were also free men in the South. So that it wasn't like clearly like, oh, he, uh, across this line, there are no slaves. And that was that completely bogus. And it, and it, it also worked against too. Because why would the North have five slave states if they're fighting against slavery? And during the Emancipation Proclamation, he only freed slaves in the South, not in the North. And that was more about keeping the British out of the war than anything else. And then the Civil War didn't even free the slaves. The 13th Amendment did. And three northern states refused to ratify it. And only one southern state refused. So you just lost 600,000 people in a war to free the slaves. And now here's the amendment to free the slaves. And three northern states vote against it? No. Of course not. But of course the, way, <laughs> the war wasn't about slavery. Yeah. And of course, the New England um, it was it was the New England shipping companies that made money shipping the slaves across the Atlantic Ocean before the international slave trade was shut down by a southerner. Yeah, and the, it was that capital from the slave trade. Slave trade. And yeah. yeah, it was the American flag on all those ships. The American yeah. flag was also designed by racists who owned slaves. The Ross family had slaves, but that's not. No one says the American flag represents slavery, even though they had slaves for so long in such a long period. Or genocide, even though that continued after the Civil War too, genociding American Indians. I mean, they they murdered them, and when they lost in war, they salted the lands and started shooting the buffalo to starve people to death. I just, I'm mean, let me tell you something about General Custer because this just disgusts me to no end. He's a cavalry general in the Union Army. He ends up leading the charge and slaughtering people at wounded knee. And this guy, they used to sell young Indian women to crowds of cowboys to be raped as sex slaves. They would put them up, strip them naked on the stage. I mean, girls as young as 10 and sell them in auctions to gangs. What the gangs would do is they would all buy one girl together. They'd pull their money and, and buy her and rape her to death in Custer's corrals. And he personally had Indian mistresses that he would fornicate with uh, nightly until his wife moved out there. <laughs> and of course, he ended up getting killed, and they make him out to be this hero in the, you know, while Bill plays and all. And then later, the Hollywood westerns and the Indians were like Arabs today. They're completely demonized. And Dime store novels, yeah. 
And it's stories, oh, it was his Custer's hubris. He tried to kill too many Indians. Like, well, yes and no. Uh, Crazy Horse had actually went around Custer and cut off his supply lines days before and set up this battle. Custer was running out of water and ammunition, and he had to attack because had he waited, he would have lost everything anyway. He got forced into that battle. But they never give the American Indians credit for the generalship and how they had outsmarted him. They they just had to blame it on Custer's hubris instead, which is a sort of a crass and stupid look at history. It's just ignoring the weeks prior to Little Bighorn. But, I mean, these guys did not care about blacks or Indians or slaves or human rights or anything like that. The North wanted to preserve the Union. And Lincoln made that very clear. He stated if he could preserve the Union without freeing slaves, he would. If he could do it by freeing slaves, he would. And if he could do it by freeing some and not others, he would that his principal purpose was to preserve the Union. They didn't give a damn about blacks. As the largest race riot in American history was in New York City during the Civil War. You had the draft riots, they were called, but they went around lynching and hanging black people. And It's like that today. I mean, New York cops can choke black people on film and get acquitted by the state. But no one goes after the New York state flag for that. The worst race riots in the 60s were in, like, in Detroit and L.A. and uh, uh, D.C., yeah. not in the South. <laughs> so, Of course it was. And yeah. I mean, there were Jim Crow laws, which were not just against blacks. It was against the poor because there were literacy tests. And, you know, to repeal the Jim Crow laws, they actually used Confederate flags in their movement. And the Mississippi Freedom Party, which was endorsed by Martin Luther King, had a confederate flag with a white and black hand uh, doing a handshake Mm -hmm. it was considered you know we are rebelling against the establishment uh which because the establishment was pro-segregation and the rebels were wanted to desegregate and again the confederate flags came out and people also like to say oh the confederate flag was added to south carolina alabama uh during the civil rights movement against blacks no the Confederate flags were added because it was the centennial of the Civil War. It was 1961, the war was from 1861, and it was a 100-year anniversary. That's why they did it. It was nothing to do with the Civil Rights. The Civil Rights Movement was using the flag itself to rebel against segregation. But the American expansion, uh, you could say that the people that perpetrated the slaughter of the American Indians, the Plains Indians, they were bloodied during the Civil War, though. Like the Buffalo Soldiers, the vaunted Buffalo Soldiers, they, they were sent west to go uh, wreak havoc out west, correct? Sure. Well, also the Cherokee Nation also seceded, and you know, they, were, they, were in, they said they weren't part of the Union anyway, but they did secessionist papers, and broke with the confederation they had their own confederation and fought on the side of the south and so they were targeted which is ironic too because they'd already been put on the trail of tears you know well yeah jackson they still saw it they knew that these northern railroad industrialists once they got their roads going west to connect with california everything in between was becoming white and american and they were going to get killed so they fought on the side of the south they're really fighting on the side of themselves obviously but they they see they saw that Here's a nation that doesn't abide his constitution, and this is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And there, again, there's nothing inherently wrong with uh, with building railroads, extending transportation, modernizing. But when you uh, um, when you throw all uh, morality aside, all sense of justice and fair play, and 
basically if you can do what you want to the people that are already there, you can kind of uh, make them pay. You can externalize the cost. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, America had built all its canals and railroads through private investment and entrepreneurs. Yeah. <clears throat> but with Lincoln, it became mercantilism. Yeah. It was this is the merger of state and business where they are just start subsidizing certain industries at the expense of others and creating monopolies. And you, you see that today with drug companies and weapon companies, Lockheed Martin's 90% of its business is from the U.S. government. And we pay drug companies through agricultural subsidies where they will give farm subsidies to ranches and farms, but a large portion of that money goes to pay for pesticides and antibiotics and all these uh, steroids and so on from drug industries. So it's really an indirect subsidy for big pharma. But selectively yeah. so, and they selectively enforce copyright uh, law to favor the establishment industries, so that upstarts and innovation just get swallowed up and rewarded to Dow, Searle, and Chemical, and the, yeah. those the companies, uh, Dupont especially, um, because they have a lot of money and they can influence government to do that. And you really saw that with the Commerce Clause and the railroads, you know, go across several states. And so this was, a, you know, a pretext for the federal government to grab more power and reward money to them. And uh, but that, you know, putting tariffs up to 50 percent, as they did in the tariff of abomination, that really got the ball rolling for nullification and threats. And after the Mexican War was settled and Texas was a state and they were talking about going west. Lincoln reinstituted the tariffs and everyone knew. I mean, he wasn't even on the ballot in southern states and he still got elected to become president. The North knew that they had a larger population and they could vote themselves money at the expense of everyone else. The South was only 25% of the population and they were paying 80% of the taxes. And How does a quarter of the country pay 80% of the taxes? I mean, if that happened today, there would definitely be secession. And those pay, and of course, those tax payments are subsidizing the very things that are undermining the southern economy. They were, and yeah. and also, it, it came out of the blue because a lot of things were bought on credit, and the and the South made money seasonally when my whatever crop they're growing. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Hey, and so if you bought whatever textiles or piano or something, and then all of a sudden this large tariff comes and. 15% and, you know, and cotton's dropping down to nine cents from 21 cents in two years. And then they couldn't pay. And it, you know, another thing that exacerbated this was the second bank of the United States through inflation caused a depression. And that was the pretext for creating the new tariffs. So like if we create these new tariffs, we can get out of the depression. Well, it just made it worse, obviously. But that was caused by the banks. Uh, and the South was prospering well. Um, but the Europeans were buying goods from the South, not the North. The Europeans had already established their, their factories and manufacturing base. They're not going to buy from the dinky American one, but they were buying cotton, tobacco, and, and agricultural crops. And the North was jealous. They didn't want the South making money. They didn't want them to prosper. They wanted their own uh, manufacturing industries to prosper. And they had for a time during the War of 1812 because all exports were banned. And that was a time where American industry did grow because they had to sell internally. But uh, it was also trying times for everyone. I mean, the, the basic, you know, living standard dropped considerably. It really hurts consumers to arbitrarily give somebody a monopoly. And the other thing with the tariffs was compounded by Europeans putting tariffs on the United States. So not only 
where did they have a 50% tax and then later down to 28% or 20%, which is still way too high. They couldn't export their goods either because Britain and France started putting tariffs on the United States. Well, what were they buying from the United States? Cotton, tobacco, and agricultural products. So again, the South couldn't sell its goods and it couldn't buy manufactured goods from Europe either, which forced them to have to buy internally and on credit and without being able to to make revenue themselves because they were so reliant on exports. And so it's no wonder that obviously uh, the war starts in South Carolina and it starts by firing on uh, at a port where they collected the money. Now, of course, start at a slave plantation. Now, yeah. there were people that went around trying to get slave owners to support the war effort for the, the simple fact that they had money. So they started preaching slavery, this and that, to try and get their financial support. But you know, two-thirds of the South didn't own slaves, and most of them, mostly it was just state pride. I'm from Virginia, and I'm going to fight for Virginia, things like that, that simple, that basic. It's just like that now. I mean, look at people in sports teams or whatever. Yeah, yeah, regional. regional oil. And the North came down to, build, to Bull Run, you know, with a big invasion force and got repelled twice. Uh, and people joined because they just identified with being a Southerner. It wasn't even a particular ideological thing. Now, the government obviously started wars over the tariff policies and things and trade, but the basic soldier was there because that's where they were from, and they were fighting for that. And the Confederate battle flag becomes a symbol of rebellion and Southern identity post-war during Reconstruction because you have to understand a quarter million people were killed, Entire cities have been burned down. Their rights were taken away after the war, even after the assassination, and then it got worse. And they had to rebuild from nothing. And this really set the South back decades in terms of education and other matters because nothing was there. The schools were gone. Their infrastructure had been taken away. They had to start over. And then they had to deal with carpetbaggers and everything else. And so they bonded as a unity of, you know, we, we fought for our independence. We didn't get it. But we made it through this. We made it through Reconstruction. And they saw that battle flag as a way of sticking it to the man. They're saying, look, uh, the concessions they did get was because they fought. You know, they didn't want another civil war. Lincoln started to capitulate at the end. They needed to reunify. They needed to heal. That's why Thanksgiving all of a sudden got changed into what it is today. You know, brotherly, family, (laughs) Love, although, you know, the original Thanksgiving was celebrating the Mystic River massacres, also in the north of American Indians. Uh, that got changed by Lincoln. Um, and they, you know, they got Robert E. Lee to go out and try and reunify the country, start trying to heal. But it was the battle flag, not the Confederate flag, that people flocked to because they supported those who had fallen, the soldiers. And the United States government recognized Confederate soldiers as U.S. veterans. And that's why it bothers me deeply. I don't like desecrating the dead, period. I don't care who you are. I don't even care if it was a Stalinist, communist, or a Nazi, or whatever. You don't mess with the dead. And we've got people desecrating graves now of U.S. veterans because, in their mind, they're racist. As if the Union Army wasn't also racist, you know. It was they are all racist, pretty much. It was the eighteen sixties. You could have done that hundred years later, they still would have been racist. <laughs> Look at the propaganda in World War Two toward the Japanese or yeah. I mean, is just unapologetically racist. Uh 
and again for American Indians, for Chinese, for Vietnamese, the Korean War, etc. They demonize the enemy, and racism is one of those tools. And does catch you even now? If you these goddamn Arabs and da 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 da, you get a lot of racism in Blackwater and these mercenary armies, and a lot of religious bigots too. They want to kill Muslims because nine eleven or something collectively condemn the whole faith or the whole race, whatever. Because that does happen now and it happened then. But I wouldn't go spray paint, even though I've opposed every single one of these wars, I would never go to a soldier's grave and write racist on it. Never. Even if he was a racist, still wouldn't do it. Yeah, just you uh, don't speak ill of the dead. You, know? you don't speak ill of the dead, and you, and you don't know who that person was at all yeah. anyway. And you just can't do that. And people are doing that, and it's getting out of control. And what I see coming down the line as a consequence of this is there's going to be a big backlash. When you go around, I mean, you just when you're attacking historical monuments, memorials, graves, with a deep part of American history, and I grew up in the South, and I saw the Confederate flag my whole life. I never saw associated racism until about the 1990s when the NAACP declared war on it. They needed something to do. And you started getting these HBO specials where skinheads and stuff would have the Confederate flag. I'm like, why do they have the Confederate flag? What's that got to do with neo-Nazis in Germany? Like, what? You know. And it was because of this race narrative. Like, the North was just the good guys that went to free <laughs> blacks from the yoke of oppression, which is just laughably inaccurate. Uh, well, yeah, if you look at the South itself, after the Civil War, you have this brutal war that rampages, that Union Army rampages through the South, burning cities, destroying farms, countless thousands probably starving to death in the process that aren't really factors. War crimes, and then you have the brutal occupation, reconstruction, corrupt occupation. Then, when the right, the whites finally reassert themselves, you're, obviously you're going to have a reaction to that. And to, to not to put any blame on the North for the conditions in the South, that's, people just completely forget about that. Um, how, uh, for a better part of a century, the U.S. government did nothing uh, for, for blacks. In fact, it worked against their interests, you know, particularly with the uh, Davis-Bacon Act and much of these, the New, New worse, Deal legislation. Worse than that, what they started doing is they purposely impoverished the South and they shipped black workers up north to break to bust the unions. When the North started to unionize and for the movement in labor, they the started Foundation. bringing blacks into these Rust Belt towns to undermine the labor and, and you know, break the and strikes. no housing, by the way, destroying right. ethnic neighborhoods in the process. And, and wondering why and there's fighting. first it later. And pushed all the blacks back out yeah. and rehired the whites once they gained control of the unions with, you know, through organized crime. They did not care about any particular race or people. These people work for profit, period. They spun the war during the 1960s is when the Civil War became about slavery because race was the popular theme. But, I mean, still people were using the Confederate flag to rebel against the war in Vietnam. They had this the... Uh, a battle flag shaped like a peace sign and there were movements out because again there's a disproportionate number of southerners who died in vietnam that's who got sent to vietnam blacks and poor whites mm -hmm. or poor blacks and poor whites disproportionately and then with some of those whites were actually latino which got categorized as white in the war and probably weren't i don't think you need racial statistics on stuff like that but whatever i mean and it's men too obviously but it was poor people who got sent in the war. It's always poor people dying in a rich man's war. And even during the Civil War, it was Irish conscripts and things. People were fleeing the potato famines and coming to North where 
you know, there were other Irish immigrants prior and they got conscripted in the army and promised land and money. And of course, it was never delivered. They were just used as cannon fodder. And the, the Irish and the Chinese were both used to build railroads. And part of the, the motivation for ending slavery was not altruism. It was just more cost efficient to have wage slaves than it was cattle slavery. They did the right thing for the wrong reason. They didn't care about anybody. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned earlier, this the Civil War itself uh, uh, was the creation uh, of all the formations of what you call the American plutocracy, oligarchy, the Rockefellers, the uh, the um, uh, Duponts, and oh, yeah. uh, and you have uh, where they begin to monopolize a lot of these things, where they develop, uh, they take over. Uh, they start open and all front. under some pretext of altruism, like, oh, we're we're going. I mean, you see it today. We're going to liberate women in Afghanistan. We're yeah. going to Libya for human purposes, whatever. Well, philanthropy, we're help right? Kurds in Iraq. Yeah. It's just total disingenuous garbage. It's for resources. It's for power. It always is. But it's they, like what they call it the Powder Trust in World War One with the Duponts, where they they amass these fortunes off the carnage of World War One. And they leverage that wealth politically, and that's what the Rockefellers did. They, when it went into banking, they – like you mentioned. That. That's yeah. a good point. <laughs> and the way they opened up universities, they changed history and historical – they took over the American Historical Association, started hiring mm-hmm. their own professors. And this is where they the, – the, um, you know, they hired Ivy Lee and uh, Edward Bernays, and they went into <laughs> – they got into media, uh, radio. And, uh, yeah, the Civil yeah. War had always been taught as having multiple causes. And they went over the tax and tariff policies and all of it. And that got changed later. It just became slavery. Well, the we biggest thing is, you alluded to it is, the, is this tactic where they started using philanthropy as cover for their misanthropy. <laughs> you know? Well, exactly. We're, all, we're, we're invading Grenada because of uh, communists. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. You know, yeah, Latin America is a good U.S. because you've written a lot of Also, Africa, for that matter, is where it's. Uh, uh, you know, where oh, yeah, uh, neocolonialism. I did yeah. a video on that too. Actually, we didn't mention in the beginning. It's called I don't have a clever title. It's just called neocolonialism in Africa. But yeah. um, absolutely, like with Zambia, etc., and the and the copper mines owned by Glencore and the the USA to Africa and the the loans are predatory loans. They're not to help poor Africans like in the commercial. Oh, look at this starving kid. Don't you want to pay? You know, they're doing it domestically too. Student loans. <laughs> yeah, but not as bad as Africa. No, it's not as, no, it's not as, as brutal. Student loans, guaranteed yeah. loans, just, uh, you know, increase tuition. <laughs> People say, shouldn't college be affordable for the poor? I'm like, yeah, but now you've made it unaffordable for everyone. It used to be the person by the way. that saved money still can't go to college unless they get a loan too because yeah. guaranteed loans, and they they I mean some of them are are more than like eighty thousand dollars more yeah. than that hundred thousand. And the same time they've deindustrialized the economy. Thousand dollars, you should just leave. Yeah, you're good. You're good for several years and easily. Just go start a business. Yeah. If you got hundred grand, just keep it. Like you won. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of funny as uh, uh, how these elite interests bite out like the civil rights movement, like the NAACP and a lot of these uh, uh, black politicians, where they're more or less the tools of the elite. Because uh, it's kind of similar what they do in they Africa. They don't care about blacks. I mean, the, these organizations, a lot of these charity organizations, this is what happens to them too. Is they, it's the way Occupy or the Tea Party or any other modern movement gets hijacked by lunatics, you know. Mm-hmm. And you get these race hustlers that. The, the NAACP 
ICP started is with legit reasons, but it quickly just yeah. it it doesn't do it doesn't further interest for minorities at all. But then and, Edward Bernays wasn't he a founding member? Or something? <laughs> I was like, what did he have to do with that? I mean, like, so you know. Well, yeah, I mean, they start all these organizations start with a lofty sounding purpose, and yeah. they quickly get taken over. I mean, even the Red Cross, which did good work in the beginning. The modern Red Cross, you look at the disaster in Haiti, you know, how much money they spent to build, what, 12 houses or something? Mm-hmm. I mean, the money is just squandered because no one looks at it. And that's the thing is you can – if you can attach yourself to some unquestionable good thing like we're doing this for education. We're doing this for the environment. We're doing this for – to help this minority group or women or something like that. Everyone's like, oh, I'm for that. I'm, I, of course, I support that. And – but that's just the theme, you know. They're collecting money to pay off superintendents in a large bureaucracy, or you know, they yeah they went into Haiti, but it's more or less just a, a way of enriching themselves, and very little of it actually goes to the people they you know supposedly are there to help. Same and, thing with Doctors Without Borders, you know. It's he, it, it, which is it, sad, you know. Yeah. The Red Cross was used as a pretext against the Soviet Union too, but. Well, yeah, NGOs, the whole NGO uh, meme or strategy, you know, against yep. the, in the and, Russia today. You can categorically yeah. reject them. You have to look at NGOs and charity organizations on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you, like, pretty much all the real big, <laughs> big ones you know of are bad, are corrupt, um, because the government takes takes control. Yeah. And the moment that you, People you understood the tariff policies of the Civil War. I don't think they would be so confused about TPP and why that matters. Mm-hmm. But they just people just don't understand. We, like there was no income tax, right? In the United States, we still had roads and schools and a post office and everything without an income tax. But there were large t- taxes on tariffs. But you had a quarter of the population paying eighty percent of the taxes, and that is why they wanted to form their own set of nations. And the Confederate Constitution. What they changed is that Article 1, Section 8, where they got rid of the general welfare clause uh, because they wanted it, duties to be uniform so that you couldn't specifically tax a certain type of good. It would just have to be on goods, not just cotton or just wool or what have you. And they added a line item veto and they set term limits, all stuff that we support today. But they had it back in the 1860s. Well, you know, uh, coming up on a final uh, I guess six minutes of our interview um, so the American Civil War misnomer obviously we covered that it was sure. obviously war for southern independence I want to say for... something about the flag too yeah yeah good because it relates to this flag controversy like, ruining my childhood here taking it off the Dukes of Hazard and things <laughs> and this is like this I mean it's been everywhere it was like it's an entertainment you had Leonard Skinner and Kid Rock and musical bands that had it forever like Kid Rock was a top selling musician in the late 90s, early 2000s, and had Confederate flags in his music videos. He had them in his concerts, and no one said a thing. And he sold records north, south, wherever, and it wasn't an issue yet. He had Stone Cold Steve Austin in professional wrestling with it, and no one said he was racist or anything. It was just he's from Texas. you know. It's just a southern yeah. thing. Then you had shows like the Dukes of Hazard, which was, again, I'm just naming stuff that were top-selling things because Kid Rock was, Stone Cold was, Dukes of Hatter became the show for its time period. It was the most widely watched many seasons. And 
that was based on real people from North Carolina, and they had the Traveler was the General Lee. General Lee's horse was named the Traveler, and yeah, that was yeah. in the car when they were bootlegging. And so Bo and Luke, it was set in Georgia, but it was based on real people from North Carolina that actually did that, who were cousins and all that. And so they had the General Lee, and there was a Confederate battle flag on it, and no one paid no mind. There's absolutely nothing racist in that show. The show was about bucking the law, and it was uh, you corrupt, know, corrupt people local training officials, yeah. Boss Hog and corrupt, you know, corrupt politicians and cops yeah. trying to take the Duke farm, trying to take the land away. And so as, you know, part of Southern culture and rebellion and independence, and self-sufficiency, they were having none of it. And they had wholesome values. And they were Christian. They they prayed before they ate and things like that. <laughs> and they were well, bootleggers. <laughs> they were bootleggers. Yeah. <clears throat> or Jesse had been. They were trying to get, become race car drivers or something. Yeah. You know, whatever. It was a fun show. And. Daisy Duke, of course, you know, she invented Daisy Dukes as part of our culture. I mean, Daisy Dukes exists because of Daisy Duke. That woman, Catherine Bach, designed those uh, booty shorts. And, you know, they all went on to do different things. Cooter became a congressman in Virginia. He was the mechanic in the show. And Ben Jones, yeah. Yeah, Luke became a country star and so on. And, you know, Bo was from New York, uh, lied about where he was from, lied about his age. You <laughs> know, he got the part. But he was great as Bo Duke. And, um, named after Beauregard, you know, and they couldn't find anything racist in, in that show. But they just said, well, the flag's just a symbol of racism, even though there's absolutely nothing portraying racism in it. They're just like, well, it's the flag, right? But like, well, obviously, you know, you have all these many decades of Southern culture and music and entertainment and television shows, etc., with this flag as a symbol of rebellion and as a symbol of Southern heritage forever. And that is clearly how a lot of people see that flag and have used that flag. For, for There's tons of examples. But it's because they put the microscope on the Ku Klux Klan and the idiots like this. They're like, see, they're racist and they have this flag. Therefore, that's what the flag is, the meaning. And yet the Ku Klux Klan also has American flags. They also have a Christian cross. And I'm not a Christian, but... I know that that's not what the cross represents. Yeah. But you could make an argument that actually that symbol's killed more people than all the <laughs> above. But yeah, yeah. Christians today, you know, normal Protestant, Catholic, whatever that live in America, do not want to lynch people and hang yeah. them. And blah, blah, blah. that is extreme. And the the clan, the uniform is the shape of a cross, and they have a burning cross. That is their symbol, you know. And then some of them go around with. Everything from Confederate flags to German swastikas and stuff. You know, they're idiots. They don't get to own any of those symbols, the cross or the stars and bars or any of that. You know, well, they, they just half of them are probably federal agents anyway. <laughs> most of them are FBI and most of them are in the north. They're more skinheads in New Jersey than they yeah. are in any state. New Jersey also rejected the ratifying 13th Amendment, yeah. too. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they shouldn't. You know, the hell with those people. They don't get to take the flag. And I hope more Southerners, and a lot of people don't want to get accused of being racist, so they hide from this. But it be, it would have been perfectly fine to have a, a rally of uh, Confederate supporters to go against the Klan and the Black Panthers. They're both racist organizations, yeah. you know. And I hope that happens. But it should have been up to the people of South Carolina to decide about the fate of their own flag without pressure from all these other people that don't live there, have, you know, have no idea. They, these millennials grew up and on the internet and they see memes and stuff. I saw the, I, I mean, I lived in Virginia 
where most of the Civil War was fought. And from Fredericksburg through to just Shenandoah, whatever, there are battlefields, memorials, museums, it's just they're everywhere. And you see Confederate flags on the back of a truck, a bumper sticker, what, just at someone's house, whatever. And it's just a, I'm a Southerner. That's what it's always meant. And there are black people with them, too. They're, they're everybody. I had an uncle who's Chinese, and he loved it. He had a Confederate flag in his business forever. He was very hardcore American because he left communist China, you know. And uh, uh, anyway, it's... Well, I, I think it's a, it, the whole point is it's a cultural agenda or corporate or corporate agenda where they're trying to destroy any I, idea of local identity, local patriotisms to create this. Well, they want to divide. Culture. And yeah, there's a divide and conquer strategy there too, and they're doing that. They want to divide people, and they knew that would piss off millions of people, which it did. And but they're always going to put the camera on the racist. Oh yeah, yeah. They never. Yeah, they will. You, you know, things. that's why I put my flag back up and said, look, I'm not going to let you steal this symbol. A lot of people died fighting the corporatocracy from under this banner. And I understand their reasons and they fought to protect their own homeland. And even though I oppose the Civil War, and I, I pretty much oppose nearly every war. Um, I still honor veterans. Um and I think when when you're attacked, because that was a war where we actually got attacked, and of course you can't negotiate for peace while you're being attacked or occupied. Like I can I can understand why Hezbollah or Palestinians fight Israelis. I can understand why Crazy Horse killed Custer. I like I would have supported the war on for their side, but not the war of aggression. And that's what the Northeast did. It was pure aggression uh, and pure greed. And had nothing to do with wanting to free slaves. There were abolitionists, abolitionists to be sure, and they lived in the North and South, but they were not in charge. That is not what happened with the war of Northern aggression. I think it was uh, the late Murray Rothbard who said the American Civil War, as he phrased it, or the war between the states, uh, was last was the last just war fought by in the United States, and that was he said, and the, and the wrong side won. So right, yeah, I mean, he pointed out he. Rothbard had looked at arguments from John Randolph and others who had already articulated it very well, um, Heyman and, and others, what was going on, you know, how these how free trade was a superior policy and that this mercantilist system was just favoring certain industries and dividing the nation and led to nullification ultimately, which they're scared to death of. And another thing that this, this battle does is it discredits the idea of nullification because that comes from South Carolina and it comes from John Calhoun. And we're trying to use nullification uh, against the NSA right now. And it states rights that what people, I know there was just a Supreme Court decision about homosexual marriage, but what people have to remember is that that was already legal in several states. And the same with uh, legalizing marijuana which is still not a federal thing. The reason it's legal in Oregon and Colorado and Washington State and Washington, D.C. is because of states' rights. It's because the state can say, well, we don't agree with the federal government and we're going to make these things legal in our state. That process happened much earlier because of states' rights. If you have to wait until the federal government makes a sweeping law, you can wait for a very, very long time. And it's because of states' rights that the federal government ends up doing it. It's because certain states start breaking to break away and show, look, we legalized pot and it was, hell didn't break loose. You know, Because states can do it first, 
is what puts the pressure on the federal government to do it eventually anyway. Mm-hmm. And without states doing it first, the federal government usually won't do it. I mean, whether you agree with it or not, states can decide whether or not they're going to have this law or that law and what's constitutional. And it's a better way and it's a faster way towards progress. Uh, and it keeps them at bay. It divides the power. There's a great letter between General Lee and Lord Acton about that, where General Lee predicts, he says, he's afraid that if the Union wins the war, that the course is going to be imperialism abroad and domestic despotism at home. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, Lee predicts the 20th century. <laughs> he predicted the 20th century. Robert. In 1867. <laughs> 1866, about, yeah. Amazing. Well, Ryan, I want to thank you for coming on tonight. That was great. Um, it's, it's a very complex and interesting topic. Your article is a very succinct treatment of it, and I recommend it to everybody. Because it's, yeah, the it's, articles are better. I mean, I can't memorize yeah. all those facts. Yeah. But I, can, I, I haven't gotten into the Civil War for a long time. My brother knows it inside and out, and I know a lot from him. I have a twin. It's all about that. I'm much more into the Middle East and other things, mm-hmm. but I mean, I understand economics, and so I could read it and listen to him and then get it. But, uh, you know, I'm not a Civil War historian like Mike Scruggs or Thomas DeLorenzo or, or these guys that specialize in this issue. But I just from looking around Facebook and stuff, I go, well, I seem to know a lot more than most. <laughs> well, you, because you, you uh, bother to crack a book, so that gives you a head up. Right. I've, yeah, I've read books about it, certainly. But I When I was a little kid, I mean, I heard the whole I sided with North. I was like, okay, yeah, you know. Well, same with me. I mean, out. I didn't hear any about this stuff. I said, oh, North won, and where it's America, war is good. Blah blah blah. Rah, rah, yeah, say USA. That's how you know. Yeah, cheerlead for the team, but yeah. you know, when you, I grew up, and I think a lot of people can't. They need that crass generalization where it's just some stupid good versus evil narrative where you gotta, we went to do this. And, mm-hmm. No, you know, it's not. And you get the same stuff for World War One, World War Two, and. All of the, all the conflicts. You know, we're fighting communists. We're fighting terrorists. We're civilizing savages. It's some stupid excuse for naked aggression. Yeah, it's always well. That's the excuse to go in and take uh, monopolize uh, markets, take over the world, and that's what the war is always by deception. Mm-hmm. Well, listen. Thank you. Uh, it's again. It's the ANCReport.com. Yeah. ANCReport. That's where you can get, see Ryan's work. Uh, you can also see his books he's written, which is, I guess, the most recent is the Separation of Business and State. Which Separation of Business and State. I also co-authored a book called Why Peace. Why it's Peace. Co-authored by a number of people, but that's over 600 pages. I highly recommend it. Uh, people have had very emotional reactions reading that. People have cried mm-hmm. uh, as you hear. It's Voices from the Voiceless that book, and I don't get any royalties for that or anything. I just contributed to it freely. Not knowing how successful it would be, no. <laughs> but uh, it's, I mean, I had to put it down because I was like, whew. You know, you hear some of the stories. It's not as emotional as Hellstorm, but, the, I mean, there was one story about Cambodia that, I mean, there's this the stuff in there that just doesn't make the news, you know, the fumigation in Colombia and what's happening, like things, stories that ought to be told that aren't. We kind of focus on the big wars, the war in Iraq, obviously horrible, hundreds of thousands, possibly a million people dead from that. But there are other smaller conflicts where, you know, 30,000 people killed here, 20,000 here that just get brushed under the rug and aren't even talked about at all. And so why peace? It's a big, thick book. And it's perspectives from, I think, 55 different countries. You have different authors. I was Japan's, one of them. And 
you get soldiers, you have victims of war, people who participate in the war, you've got politicians, like everything. And you hear their side and what they had to go through, what veterans are dealing with today, what people in Fallujah had to deal with post-Fallujah and, and so on. And that's a good one. And then separation of business and state is basically my thesis that the government has a reverse Midas touch where everything they touch doesn't turn to gold, it turns into something else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, well, listen, thank you. Um, again, ancreport.com, read his stuff, watch his documentaries on YouTube. and yep. you will got a podcast on there, too. They're provocative, they're edifying. Uh, even if you don't agree with them, he always gives you something to think about, and that's something you can't sneeze at. So thank you, Ryan. One last thing. I will be doing a AMA, Ask Me Anything, about the new film Empire Unmasked. Well, it's Ask Me Anything, so it's anything, but I, I hope they ask about that. That's a show, yeah. <laughs> on Reddit. Reddit. I don't have the okay. date quite yet, but it'll be on Reddit. It'll be an AMA. It's the first one I've ever done. I think it's going to be <laughs> entertaining. Okay, that's good. <laughs> I may pull some people to the woodshed if I have to, but uh, I don't mind. Um, I always engage the public. I, I don't care about being who's right. I just care about what's right. And I find that dialogue is the best way. If I'm saying something dumb, someone can call me out on it. And I'll just go, okay, I see new evidence and change my mind. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter to me. And a lot of people can't do that. And also people have a hard time saying they don't know. They don't know something. But I hope that people look today learned a bit more about the Civil War. You can't just dismiss the tariff issue like it was nothing. You just can't. And you can have multiple causes and... And I could argue more about why it wasn't about slavery, if if that's the thing. But I wanted to spend the time more so explaining what happened with tariffs, because I feel like that's the more omitted portion of the narrative. Well, the bigger the bigger, more destructive the war, the bigger the lies that are necessary to uh, sanctify it. So. Yeah. Did you say that, or is that a quoting? <laughs> I just made that up myself, and I'm sure it's been well, said it's before. True. <laughs> it's probably been said, but that that's very. I'm true. sure it's been said before. <laughs> <laughs> I might have heard it. Maybe I heard it. When I was halfway asleep somewhere. But no, but yeah, it's, it's bigger the war, the bigger the lies. That's you know. So it's great. Yeah. Comes. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm glad well, that, that someone called. move today to eliminate Confederate symbols from the American landscape springs from the myth taught for two generations that the South seceded to protect slavery while the North invaded to abolish slavery. The claim is, is as preposterous as it is popular. No national political party in the entire antebellum period ever put forth a proposal to emancipate slaves. And Lincoln and Congress repeatedly made clear that emancipation was not the reason for invasion. All this talk about slavery as the cause of the war is a smokescreen to hide the stark immorality of the North's invasion. The South did not secede over 
policy questions regarding slavery, the tariff, Western territory, or any other policy. The South seceded for the simple reason that it wanted to govern itself and was capable of doing so. No one wastes time today wondering whether Scotland or Catalonia or the colonies in 1776 really had good policy reasons for secession. Their desire for self-government and their ability to do it was a sufficient reason. The question, therefore, that historians should be asking, and which is the only question they ask, is why? Why did the South secede? But they should be asking, why did the North invade? There would have been no war had the North not invaded the South. This question is suppressed because an honest answer to it would not be morally attractive. Historians have yet to confront the hard moral truth that the best solution to all the problems facing the Union in 1861, including the moral problem of slavery, was a negotiated division into two federations. Now, what sort of government did Southerners hope to enjoy by secession? The answer is to be found most clearly stated in the Confederate Constitution. It gives mute testimony to their reasons. But it is important to understand that this Constitution was not a new Constitution. The Southerners took with them the original Constitution, which they dearly loved, and they amended it in certain respects. Now, what positive good did these reforms seek to achieve? And what bad things did those reforms seek to avoid? In order to answer this question, we must keep in mind that we here have all inherited two incompatible visions of America, which I shall symbolize as Jeffersonian America and Lincolnian America. Now, I treat these as timeless symbols which means that there were, there were Lincolnians before Lincoln, for example, Hamilton, and there were Jeffersonians before Jefferson, the Anti-Federalists. Uh, but these will serve as symbols. These incompatible visions were intimated from the first. They clashed in the bloodiest war of the 19th century, and they are still with us today, unabated. Stripped of the essentials, the division, the division is this. And I'm just going to talk about the constitutional division. There are other divisions, too. But the for the Jeffersonians, the Constitution is a compact between sovereign states creating a central government to which they delegated only a few enumerated powers, foreign treaties, defense, and so on. All of the powers, religion, education, health care, marriage, and the like, are reserved to the states, period. Madison said, for example, that a state could interpose to protect its citizens from federal intrusion into its reserved powers. And Jefferson said, quote, nullification was the, quote, rightful remedy, end quote, to federal usurpation. And if need be, he said, the state could lawfully, not through revolution, but lawfully secede from the Union. It could do these things, though, only if it was a sovereign political society. You have to believe that. 
The Lincolnian vision flatly denies that the states are or ever were sovereign political societies. It holds that sovereignty is vested in the American people in the aggregate and that the Constitution is not a compact between the states but a national constitution where the central government has plenary power over uh, individuals and where the states are conceived as counties and a unitary state. And Lincoln explicitly says that in one of his speeches. Now, if the states are like counties, then Lincoln is absolutely right that a state cannot lawfully nullify an act of the central government, nor can it lawfully secede from the union any more than a county can. The county of DeKalb in, in Georgia can't lawfully withdraw from the union or lawfully nullify an act of the legislature. So you see the difference. It's stark. Now, what we have forgotten, <clears throat> and this is important, is this Jeffersonian vision of America dominated North and South from 1776 to 1861. In other words, Jeffersonian America, Jeffersonian America was America. The Lincolnian vision came to rule only after the defeat of the Confederacy. But what exactly was the character of this Jeffersonian America that dominated and that the South was fighting for because it just wanted to continue that. Jefferson's election was known as, quote, the Revolution of 1800. It was a revolution because it was in opposition to the centralizing tendencies of the Washington and Adams administrations. Jeffersonians believe that the best way to prevent tyranny is to limit the central government's power to raise and spend money. That's where the problem is. Earlier, the anti-federalists, believing the same, had urged the, that original taxing power be denied to the central government and left to the states. Now, they failed to get this into the Constitution. But Jefferson became the champion of these anti-federalists, and he ran for president on a platform to abolish all inland federal taxes, abolish all inland federal taxes, and he succeeded. From Jefferson's election until the secession of South Carolina, December 20th, 1860, Americans paid no inland taxes to the federal government, except for a brief period of taxation to pay for the War of 1812. The government could impose such taxes, but politically they were prevented from doing so. Jefferson also invaded against public credit. He urged reforms in which future generations would have a lawful way to repudiate debts imposed on them by profligate spending of earlier generations. He also sought to get the central government out of debt. In this, he did not succeed, but another Jeffersonian, Andrew Jackson, did succeed. He destroyed the Bank of the United States in 1835, which would be the equivalent of destroying the Federal Reserve today. 
For the first time in its history, the central government of the United States was out of debt. And it stayed close to that goal, stayed close to that goal up to 1861. Except for an easily managed debt to cover the Mexican War, which was only $65 million, less than the total expenditures of the federal government in 1858. That was the debt. Was Jeffersonian America. The central government's expenditure on the eve of Lincoln's invasion of the South was less than 2% of GNP. Today, it is around 40%. And much of state and local taxation is tied to federal regulations and mandates. This spectacular shift of power from the states to the central government is a consequence of what we might call the Lincolnian Revolution of 1865, which overthrew the Jeffersonian Revolution of 1800. Now, there had never been anything in the world like Jeffersonian America. It was an amazing regime. For example, modern states are self-centralizing regimes and they naturally expand centralized political and economic power. This is what they do. They grow in centralization. Jeffersonian Americanism, however, is unique in that its central government actually diminished in centralization. The states also were frugal in taxation and regulations, not just the central government. To get, take an example, the corrupt Reconstruction government in Florida in 1869 paid more for printing for its session of government, paid more for printing than the cost of the state government in 1860. The annual sessions of the Louisiana legislature had averaged, uh, in, uh, uh, prior to 1860, $100,000 a year. Under Lincolnian Republican rule during Reconstruction, they averaged around a million dollars a year. White Americans arguably enjoyed more individual and political liberty in 1861 than any people in the world then or since. Let me say that again. Jeffersonian Americans enjoyed more individual and political liberty uh, than any people in the world in or since. Whereas the people of Europe were burdened with taxes and loaded with debt, Americans paid hardly any federal taxes and were virtually free of federal debt. Europeans stood in fear of large standing armies possessed by centralized monarchies. Americans had no such fears because the sword was in the hands of state militias. Jeffersonian political economy sought to frame the constitutional rules to provide a wide distribution of landed property in order to afford citizens economic, and, and, uh, 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 economic independence. A wide distribution of landed property. In contrast, Lincolnian political economy, as far back as Hamilton, rigged, tried to rig the rules to affect economic and political centralization by uniting 
financial and commercial wealth with the central government through a public debt and a cartel of private banks chartered to manage the money supply. I mean, the Federal Reserve is like the Politburo. It just tells you what money's going to cost, what the price is. The same thing. In short, the Lincolnian regime was intended to be a regime of large-scale crony capitalism. Now, crony capitalism is a very good thing if you're part of it. Uh, and it's, you could say it's for the national good, or whatever you want to say, or for the kingdom of God, or whatever. But it's still crony capitalism. But crony capitalism, though it, it, began, it began with Hamilton and so on, it was suppressed throughout the antebellum period by the Jeffersonian regime, whose program was largely in place, after some battles, uh, by 1860. Well, let's look at it. In wealth, Jeffersonian America equaled that of Europe, though much of it was still frontier. And it was more evenly distributed wealth. Its literacy rate was higher than any country in the world as was the number of its youth going to college. Those who aspired to a Republican government in Europe saw Jeffersonian America as a model to emulate. Switzerland, for example, changed its constitution in 1848 from a loose confederation to a federal system of states in emulation of Jeffersonian America. Indeed, the Swiss went further than the Jeffersonians in denying to the central government any original taxing power. Switzerland has 26 little states called cantons, and they really, really are states. Uh, <clears throat> they range from uh, 18,000 18, to about a million in population. But the average is around 300,000. Even today, the Swiss central government may tax only for a certain period of time and at a certain rate. After that period of time has lapsed, it has no taxing power whatsoever. The power can be renewed only by a constitutional amendment requiring a majority of the cantons and a majority of individuals. Switzerland was a Jeff in 1848 was a Jeffersonian outpost in Europe surrounded by monarchies. And it still is a Jefferson Jeffersonian outpost in Europe, and we're not. Another federation influenced by Jeffersonian America is Canada, that peaceable kingdom to our north. The Canadian provinces <coughs> have the constitutional right of state nullification and secession. A Canadian province may nullify within its borders any federal law in the area of civil rights. You can just opt out. And every Canadian province has a right to a public referendum on secession at taxpayers' expense whenever it wishes. Both of these are denied to Americans under Lincolnian, the Lincolnian vision. Now, how Canada got these rights is an interesting story. Judah Benjamin the brilliant Jewish Secretary of State in the Confederacy, fled to England after the war and became a distinguished barrister. 
He took up and won a number of cases for the Canadian Parliament, uh, provinces, um, before the Imperial uh, Court. And as a result of uh, winning these cases, uh, Jeffersonian states' rights principles were placed into Canadian common law. A Canadian senator, um, we both wrote books on Hume, that's how we got to be friends, John Stewart, once told me, uh, there's a saying in Canada that the South, having lost the war in America, won it in Canada, where nullification and secession can be discussed most every day without people going crazy. Very interesting. What I have called Jeffersonian America was characteristic of North and South up to 1861. There, there was resistance, but it dominated. But it was the South that provided most of America's moral and political leadership up to that period, 1776 to 1861. Just consider this. As of 1861, the South produced nine presidents, the North six. But more important, five Southern presidents served two terms. No Northern president ever served two terms. In the first 64 years, 51 of those were under Southern presidents. You see why New England felt oppressed. No, um, that number would be higher, uh, most likely, if Polk had not imposed on himself a rule to serve only one term. Had Zachary Taylor not died in office, Millard Fillmore would not have been president. And it is likely that William Crawford would have won against John Quincy Adams in 1824 had he not suffered a stroke during the election. If these things had happened, then in the first 64 years, only eight years would be under northern presidents. Je Southerners created Jeffersonian America. Look at attorney generals from the South, 14, the North, 5. Supreme Court justices, 17, the North, 11. Speakers of the House, the South, 21, the North, 12. Southerners were crucial in securing independence from Britain and informing the Constitution. All the territory acquired by the United States beyond the original 13 states was acquired by Southern administrations. As of 1860, the United States was very much a Jeffersonian regime, governed largely by Southerners. It begins to change in the 50s, but uh, that's what it is the first six, four years. Now, there's a myth propagated uh, by New England elites in the early 19th century that Southerners were lazy, ignorant, and generally poor when compared to industrious New England. Although English historian Michael O'Brien and a number of other scholars have soundly refuted the myth, it is still fixed in the popular imagination, especially in that of Southerners themselves. Who, who sometimes readily identify with the redneck image. Talk about Stockholm Syndrome. Consider the following, though. 
Nobel laureate Robert Fogle co-authored with Stanley Ingerman a study of the economics of the Old South titled Time on the Cross, which I, I recommend. They showed that white southern agriculture was actually more productive than northern. White agriculture, more productive. And that plantation agriculture was more productive than either. The South in 1861 had the fourth largest economy in the world. The first commercially successful railway line in America was built in Charleston, South Carolina in 1830. It was called the Best Friend of Charleston. It ran 136 miles and was the largest railroad line in the world at that time. Pretty backward, right? As of 1861, the South had more miles of railroad than any country in the world except the North. Fogel and Ingerman point out that this superior productivity of white Southern agriculture over Northern attests to the high level of Southern entrepreneurship. They also observe that the superior productivity of plantation agriculture, as opposed to white Northern or Southern agriculture, was not possible without educating, training, and giving considerable responsibility to the black labor force. The authors argue that slaves are encouraged to increase production, not through the crack of the lash, but through pecuniary, pecuniary uh, incentives and promotion to positions of status. They, they claim that most overseers were probably slaves. Some planters indeed left management of the entire plantation to slaves who purchased supplies, planted, harvested, and sold the crops with the owner receiving a certain amount of the profits. Ben Montgomery, for example, was one of the, he managed the, he managed the plantation of Jefferson Davis, his brother. He was taught many skills, including land surveying and architecture. He invented an ingenious propeller for steamships, but was denied a patent from the U.S. Patent Office because he was a slave. He was again denied the patent after the war when he was not a slave. By contrast, Jefferson Davis got a bill passed. Jefferson Davis tried to get his patent for him before the war, and that failed. But anyway, uh, during the war, Davis got passed in the Confederate Congress a bill which allowed slaves to receive patents for their inventions. The 1860 census shows that the South greatly outranked the northern states in per capita income. Now, this is almost difficult to believe, but you can look at the census yourself. The 12 highest annual per capita income states were all in the South, all of them, the 12 highest. The highest was Mississippi with an annual per capita income of $2,128 a year. South Carolina, $2,017. The highest northern state, the highest, was Connecticut with $771, a little more than one-third that of Mississippi. New York's share was $597, less than a third that of Mississippi. And South Carolina, the poorest, sorry, Mississippi and South Carolina, the poorest southern state was Arkansas at $881, which was higher than any northern state. Even if slaves are counted 
and the average of income earners. Only three northern states make it to the top 12, Connecticut, New Jersey, and Oregon. So this was an amazing uh, thing in itself. And attests to the productivity of that society. Now what did Southerners do with this great wealth? According to historian Frank, well, one thing they did was they educated their, their young people. Consider this. According to historian Frank Owsley, quote, the South had more educated men and women in proportion to white population than the North or any part of the world, end quote. According to the 1860 census, there was one college student for every 247 white inhabitants in the South. One for every 247. In the North, it was one for every 703. Nearly three times as many Southerners went to college as did in the North. In 1836, Wesleyan College in Macon, Georgia was the first college in the world chartered to give women advanced degrees. The South's 260 colleges represented half the total of the United States. The South Carolina College Library had more books than Harvard in 1840. But even more impressive, a lending library next to that library had more books than the college library. Southern culture, unlike Northern, favored cosmopolitan education with emphasis on the classics. Many Southerners were educated in elite institutions of Europe and the North. Rich planters sent those, especially those of South Carolina, sent their sons to Eton, Oxford, and the Middle Temple. Of the 350 Americans admitted to the Inns of Court in London in 1860, nearly two-thirds were from, were from the South. Northern schools such as Yale and Harvard had large contingents of Southerners. Calhoun was elected valedictorian of his class at Yale. Nearly half the students at Princeton in 1850 came from the South. The flour this flourishing economy and society was destroyed root and branch by Lincoln's clumsy and ill-thought-out invasion and his later decision to turn war on civilians to win it. All told, the invasion and its aftermath and disease and the rest of it led to around a million deaths if civilians and slaves are counted. There's no way American, Lincolnian Americans can acknowledge any of this because <laughs> what would you say? We engage in an awful crime. I said earlier that Jeffersonian America under Southern leadership was the only regime in history where the central government of a modern state actually diminished over time uh, in centralization. Okay. That was its character. It could do that and did it. This hard decentralist principle, so, uh, so important to, Jeffersonian, to the Jeffersonian mind, was carried over into the Confederate Constitution, which sought to bind Southerners themselves against their own temptation to centralization. The Lord's Prayer says, lead us not into temptation. And so the Confederate Constitution was a way of saying that prayer. May we not be tempted as they were. Let's look at some of those reforms. What did they do to bind themselves against crony capitalism? 
Southerners learned from their bad experience of the Union that the best way to prevent tyranny in the central government is to restrain its ability to raise and spend money. First, the Confederate Constitution required the high bar of a two-thirds vote of both houses before a spending bill could be put to a vote. Second, that's going to be hard to, to meet. Second, the bill had to be for one and only one item as stated in its title. This eliminated tacking on earmarks and pork spending having nothing to do with the purpose of the bill. Third, bills to fund federal internal improvements such as railroads, canals, and so on were prohibited. These, project, uh, sorry, these projects were to be funded by private enterprise and or the states. Fourth, the federal government could spend money to improve the means of commerce, such as building lighthouses and cleaning out harbors, but the government was to be reimbursed by a user fee. Fifth, federal contracts with cost overruns were prohibited. Sixth, the president was given the line item veto and a single six-year term. These reforms were explicitly designed to check the rise of Hamiltonian and Lincolnian crony capitalism. The Confederate Constitution also gave the states increased power to check federal tyranny. First, any state by a two-thirds vote of both houses could impeach any federal official operating within its borders to be tried in the Confederate Senate. Now, this would put a little chilling water on federal judges. Second, and this is one of the most important reforms, any three states could initiate a constitutional amendment. Any three states. The ratification of which required only two-thirds of the states rather than the three-fourths required today. If we had this measure in place today, the states would have the final say on how to interpret the Constitution, not the Supreme Court or nine politically well-connected lawyers. The Constitution does not give the Supreme Court authority over school prayer, abortion, gay marriage, law enforcement, and a hundred other powers reserved to the states. Yet the court has usurped these powers based on nothing other than its own Alice in Wonderland reading of the 14th Amendment. Yeah, do you like Alice? <laughs> I like reading the entrails of sheep. <laughs> there's, there's a right here between the, a new right. Third, new states could enter the Confederacy, but it required a two-thirds majority of both houses. On the U.S. Constitution, a mere majority of Congress permits a new state to enter. This is destabilizing because it, new states create new majorities and new minorities. And this can severely harm important interests, especially in a huge colonial regime like the United States. It is a stupid rule, and it caused the war, really. You could argue it caused the war, because the quarrel was over Western territory. Consider the annexation of Texas. Being a foreign country, annexation required a treaty to be confirmed by two-thirds vote of the Senate. The treaty failed by a large majority in the Senate. So that's it, Texas is not gonna come in. Uh, to get around this, Congress, by questionable constitutional maneuver, decided that a joint resolution by a simple majority of both houses would be sufficient. The measure passed by only two votes in the Senate. 
Northern leaders were understandably furious and saw this as a southern grab for power. John Quincy Adams urged secession. Had the Confederate Constitution been that of the Union in 1843, Texas would never have been part of the United States because the North had enough votes for the foreseeable future to prevent a two-thirds majority of both houses of Congress. And that would have been a good thing. If Texas were an independent state today, it would have the 14th largest GNP in the world and could control its border with Mexico, which it cannot do uh, as the plaything of Lincolnian Americanism. I turn now to Lincolnian Americanism itself. Having excluded state interposition and secession, the only remedy it offers to federal tyranny is a national election. That's it. That's it. That's your remedy to tyranny. Good luck. Well, national elections can serve as a remedy, but only if the people are adequately represented at the national level. So what is the proper ratio of population to representation? Well, Madison and many of the founders thought it was one representative in the House for every 30,000 people. That would be adequate representation. As population increased, the number of representatives should also increase. But by 1910, Congress capped representation at 435, where it is today. The population in 1910 was 92 million. Today it is 320 million, yielding a ratio of one representative for every 735,000 which is a meaningless ratio, meaningless ratio. Even worse, by mid-century, there might well be 435 million in the United States, which would yield a ratio of one representative in the House for every million persons. Write your congressman. Get involved. <laughs> right. In short, as population increases in Lincolnian America, the quality of representation diminishes. And that, it diminishes every day. What to do? It will not do to increase the house, size of the house. Judged by lawmaking bodies around the world, 435 is about right. And if we increase it in accord with Madison's ratio of one for every 30,000 people, there would be 10,500 members in the house. Too big. But does this mean that Ma Madison's ratio is wrong or that the United States has grown simply too large for the purposes of self-government and we should abandon the whole idea or divide it? To fully understand how absurd our current ratio is, of one for every 735,000, imagine if that ratio were used by the first Congress, 1789 when there were around four million Americans. In that case, there would be only five members in the House. That's it. Which means that five states would have only one represent representative each. Well, that's not representation. But eight states would have none. Now, that is exactly the quality of representation we have today. It's just that bad. 
Yet bad as it is, this lack of representation in Congress is not the worst of it. For most of the laws we live under are not passed by Congress at all, but spring from the vast and impenetrable bureaucracy under the control of one man, the president. Nor is that all. Fundamental social policy regarding the place of religion in society, law enforcement, homosexual marriage, education, and the like are not decided in state legislatures or the Congress places them, but by nine politically well-connected lawyers. But there's even more. Once the Lincolnians removed the states as checks on central power, an enormous and ever-growing deposit of patronage was created in the central government over which the people have no control and the sheer size and scale of which is difficult even to comprehend. Consider this. A lawmaking majority of the House and Senate plus the President is only 269 people. If a quorum is used, it can be as low as 135. This small number rules some 320 million, a number five times as great as the Roman Empire. Last year, it spent nearly two, $4 trillion, an amount greater than the GDP of Germany. That small number spent more than the entire GDP of Germany. If you spend a million dollars a day from the birth of Christ until today, you'll have spent only 700 billion, not a trillion. Yet since 2006, the central government has printed $4 trillion out of thin air and borrowed $9.4 trillion. Never in human history, never anywhere, has so much financial and political power been, in, been in, put in the hands of so few. The federal debt has reached 19 trillion, an amount greater than the empire's GNP. Recall now that when the Jeffersonians governed the United States, largely under Southern leadership, most Americans paid no direct federal taxes at all. And from 1835 to 1861, were almost free of any federal debt. That Jeffersonian America would have continued under the Confederacy in a more enhanced form. It existed, and it would have continued, uh, perfected or enhanced under the Confederacy. But the federal debt is not the whole of it. According to Harvard economic historian Niall Ferguson, the United States has unfunded, unfunded liability, including Social Security, Medicare, etc that tops out at 238 trillion. Economist Larry Kolitoff places it at 220 trillion and says the U.S., quote, is arguably in worse financial shape than any other developed country, end quote. Now to gain some perspective on the scale of this patronage and corruption, Consider that the GDP of all countries in the world combined last year was 72 trillion, about a third of the central government's estimated unfunded liability, if Ferguson and Kalitoff are right. Whether they are or not, it doesn't, doesn't matter. They are distinguished economists, and their view is worth considering. It is unlikely that Lincolnian national elections can restrain the momentum of centralization and crony capitalism that is built into the self-centralizing structure 
of Lincolnian Americanism. It is self-centralizing. The only remedy is to revive Jeffersonian America, where the people, through state interposition or nullification, gradually begin recalling those reserved powers they have allowed through absent-mindedness or corruption to slip out of their hands. By drawing the teeth of state sovereignty, Lincolnian America has created a regime that can define the limits of its own powers, an oligarchy can do that, has created a vast impenetrable democracy under the president, a vast and uncontrollable glut of patronage and debt, and has lost the knowledge of how to stop growing. That's what a cancerous cell does. It doesn't know how to stop growing. It is like an alcoholic or drug addict, and it cannot be fixed by Lincolnian national elections. These function only as enablers, which allow the addict to continue his bad habits. Do you want to be an enabler? What is needed is an old-fashioned family intervention, where the parents, the spouse, children, aunts, cousins, grandparents, priests, and friends intervene to bring the addict back to reality. In Jeffersonian America, that family intervention function belongs to the states. They are the aunts and uncles and family members. It is called state interposition or nullification, family intervention. The Jeffersonian vision, though suppressed, is still a vital force in America today. There's a Tenth Amendment movement at work throughout the country. States are recalling their Jeffersonian inheritance and are debating intervention either through nullification or through state-initiated amendments to the Constitution. Indeed, and this is interesting, even the topic of secession is being revived despite the Lincolnian Pledge of Allegiance to one nation indivisible. To give you an example, public policy polling, a respected research institute, conducted a poll in December 2012 asking those interviewed whether they would like to see their state secede from the Union. Now notice at the centennial, no one would have ever thought of conducting such a poll. But it is thought of today. In the poll, 18% of Americans favored secession. But look at the breakdown. Of the 18 to 29-year-olds, 29% favored secession. 21% were not sure. Hispanics, 27% favored secession. 19% not sure. Blacks, 12% favored it. 16% not sure. Of those identified as very conservative, 37%. 37%. 15% not sure. Somewhat conservative, 23%. 18% not sure. Among very liberal, 13%, but 26% not sure. Somewhat liberal, 13%, 7% not sure. A quarter of Republican voters in the 2012 presidential election favored secession of their states. A Reuters Iposis poll 
release September 19, uh, 19, 2014, two years after the public policy poll just mentioned, found that an average of 25% of Americans favored secession of their states. That's over 80 million people. These polls are significant um, because they show the rapidly dwindling confidence in Lincolnian Americanism. As I said, uh, such a poll would have been unthinkable in, a, in the centennial. In conclusion, Confederate symbols and monuments are the living historic embodiment of Jeffersonian America, a thing that actually existed from 1776 to 1861. This Jeffersonian vision is the only part of the American tradition that has the resources necessary to criticize the self-centralizing regime of crony capitalism and clumsy global imperialism that Lincolnian Americanism has unhappily become. In the culture war we are living through, many Confederate monuments may go down, but the Jeffersonian vision of America, to which they bore witness, is likely only to grow stronger. Because we must remember, this, this Jeffersonian America was, North, was a feature of North and South. Thank you.